John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. People have asked me recently, why do you guys say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? There's a couple reasons. Uh, this tradition goes back 2,000 years in church history. Most denominations, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, have all done this. This is not a weird cult thing. Um, furthermore, we sing praises together, we pray together, and we're thankful together that God has spoken to us in his word. So, next time the reader says, this is the word of God, you're going to say heartily, because we're thankful together that God has spoken to us in his word. Let me pray one more time and, and ask for God's help. Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us. Lord, it would have been right and just of you to have left us without any communication because we are sinners who rebel against you. But Father, thank you for seeing fit to speak to us so clearly in the pages of Holy Scripture. We are thankful corporately that you have done this for us. Father, we pray now that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Reveal yourself to us. Lord, open our eyes. Take away the spiritual blinders. Help us to understand, comprehend, and love God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit more as a result of the truths of this particular passage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, Larry King invited an esteemed panel of scholars and guests onto his famous talk show. On this panel was a Muslim scholar, a Jewish scholar, um, a New Age scholar, a Roman Catholic scholar, and a Protestant scholar or pastor. Larry King asked one main question to all these religious leaders, and the question was simply this, what happens when you and I die? Now, the atheist scholar, because he was a materialist, said nothing our bodies rot in the ground. There is no spiritual realm. When we die, we cease to exist, period. But everybody else disagreed with the atheist scholar. And the Roman Catholic, the Muslim, the, and the Jew all agreed that when we die, all the bad people go to hell and all the good people go to heaven. The Muslim speaking for all of them said, essentially, we believe in the Muslim faith that if you do enough good things in this life, you'll go to heaven when you die. If you do too many bad things, you'll go to hell when you die. And all this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, in life, everything we do, everything we have, we have to earn. 
It's not surprising that recently a, a Pew Research poll came out and said that 52% of American Protestants believe that they are saved by their works. Half of American Protestants, Protestants, believe that, which should shock us. And this raises a critical question, how good do we have to be? How good is good enough? Now, at this point in the conversation, the Protestant pastor hadn't said a whole lot. So Larry King looked at him and said, Pastor so-and-so, what do you think? What happens when we die, and where do we go when we die? And the pastor said, no one is good enough to get to heaven. At this point, Larry King went berserk and said, what? No one's good enough to go to heaven? Are you serious? Does that mean that everyone goes to hell? And the pastor said, no. Because of grace, bad people end up in heaven. Grace is shocking. Grace is contrary to merit. Grace is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the history of the world. This church is called Grace Christian Fellowship because we love grace. And that brings us to John 1, 14 to 18. We're at the very end of John's prologue where he's introducing Jesus before he gets into the narrative of John's gospel. At the very end of the prologue, Jesus, or John highlights for us, very appropriately, the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. We'll look specifically at verses 15 to 18, because we covered verse 14 in great detail last week. But verses, four, uh, verses 15 to 18 really explain for us the beauty of grace. And John highlights three particular aspects of grace. He talks about the nature of grace. Uh, he talks about the history of grace. And then he talks about the author of grace. So first is the nature of grace. What is grace? Look with me at verse 16. John writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace, upon grace. Many people define grace as God's unmerited favor, or grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, which is a clever mnemonic device from the word grace. Both those definitions are helpful, but they don't give the whole story of grace. Grace is so much more than those things. What makes grace so amazing is who God lavishes with unmerited favor. God does not give unmerited favor to good people or to morally neutral people. What makes grace so amazing is that God freely gives his favor to people that have broke his law over and over and over again. God lavishes favor freely to people that deserve not grace but judgment. A much better definition of grace is simply this. Grace is God's favor freely given to those who deserve judgment. Now imagine for a moment that you are walking through Riverfront Park. 
As you're walking across the bridge down by the carousel, someone approaches you, and they are obviously homeless. They're dirty, they look disheveled, they look lonely, and they say, would you mind giving me $5? I'm starving. I need money for food. And because you are so magnanimous, because you are so godly, you don't give them $5 or $10. You give them $20. Now, is that grace? Kind of. Not really. That's just good old-fashioned kindness. So what is grace? Let's say the following week, the same homeless guy finds out where you live. He breaks into your house when you're gone. He violently violates your family. He steals your family heirlooms. He steals your laptop, all your silver and gold hiding in your closet. When he leaves, he tortures your house and he drives away in your brand new 2022 Toyota Sienna minivan XLE with the sick wheels. The next week, this guy is caught. Everyone knows he's guilty. You have a chance to press charges. But you decide not to. Is that grace? No, that's mercy. That's mercy. Instead, what you do as you say to this person who sinned against you, I'm going to give you $10 million. That, my friends, is grace. God freely gives us, lawbreakers, what we don't deserve. That is his own son. And it comes to us free of charge. If we don't understand who we were before conversion, we're never going to be all that amazed or astounded by the grace of God. Grace is God's favor, freely given to those who deserve judgment. And that was all of us before conversion. Grace is a gift. It's freely given. That means it cannot be earned. Imagine going to a birthday party and everyone gives the birthday boy or girl gifts, extravagant gifts. And that person who's having the birthday pulls out his or her wallet and tries to pay for all those gifts. That would seem ludicrous to us, rightfully so, because those were gifts. They can't be paid for. They can't be earned. Now, the reason why it's so hard for us to grasp grace is because everything in life really has to be earned. We work really, really hard for good grades. At least some of us do. We work really, really hard for that promotion. We work really, really hard for advanced degrees. We work really, really hard to succeed in business. We work really, really hard in the weight room to get muscles. We work really, really hard to lose weight. Nearly everything in life that's good, you have to work really hard for which is why it's so hard for us to simply receive God's free gift of grace, which is namely His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, Dave, 
If grace is free, if God forgives all of our sins free of charge, why not keep sinning so that grace may abound? By the way, if you haven't asked that question, you don't really understand grace because grace is that free. But if you really understand grace, you're going to run away from sin as fast as possible. I love what the Puritan Thomas Brooks says about this. He says this, saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his lusts as a slave is willing to leave his galley, or a prisoner his dungeon, or a thief his bolts, or a beggar his rags. Why? When you and I really understand grace, we grow in our love for God, and the more we love God, the more we're going to want to obey His commands. It's that simple. Grace is the heart chemistry that makes us obey. Okay, Dave, I understand that grace is free, but is there going to be enough grace for me? I mean, I sin a lot, maybe you're thinking. Is there enough grace? That brings us to the next question. We're still talking about the nature of grace. First question is, what is grace? Grace is God's favor freely given to lawbreakers or rebels. Next question, how much grace do we get? And the answer is an endless supply. Look at verse 16 again. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That word fullness is an interesting word. John is basically saying the fullness of Christ is what causes grace to flow to us. Uh, and that fullness refers to the sum total of all of Christ's divine attributes. attributes. There is so much goodness and love and grace in Jesus that it overflows into our lives. From his fullness, from his divine goodness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now that last phrase is very interesting, grace upon grace. It's often translated as grace instead of grace, or one gracious blessing after another, or grace following grace, or grace heaped upon grace. John is boldly saying that each experience of the grace of God is replaced by another. Meaning, you and I will never, ever run out of grace. The grace spigot never, ever shuts off. It never stops flowing. Did you know that during peak season, six million cubic feet of water, six million cubic feet of water, keep that in your mind, flows over Niagara Falls every minute. One scholar writes, God's grace is like a mighty Niagara, thundering unendingly out of eternity into our hearts. Romans 5.20, Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. John is saying that you and I will never run out of God's free favor, ever. 
Do you believe that this morning? During World War II, the Japanese launched an attack on the island of Bataan, part of the Philippine Islands. There were several thousand U.S. troops stationed there, and they were totally unprepared and undersupplied. And as they were bombarded with bombs and grenades and bullets from the Japanese, they were guaranteed by General Douglas MacArthur that more supplies were coming. Just hang in there. Keep fighting. There's more bullets, more ammo, more food coming. MacArthur said, I promise. But MacArthur was wrong because those supply ships were attacked by the Japanese and never made it to the island of Bataan. And this led to a massive and tragic massacre of U.S. soldiers on that lonely island in the Philippines. Now, a little while later, roughly one year later, the U.S. launched an attack on the Solomon Islands, which included the famous Battle of Guadalcanal. And as you can imagine, the U.S. population and the U.S. soldiers were a little skeptical of fighting that battle under MacArthur's leadership, and they were concerned about lack of supplies. As a result, the U.S. Secretary of War published this announcement in the papers. There is twice as much food as the soldiers can eat. There is twice as much ammunition as the soldiers can fire. There are twice as many doctors and nurses and as ordinarily needed in any military engagement. There are twice as many medical supplies as needed. We have twice as many airplanes as usually needed. We are prepared for every contingency. If you are a Christian, you will never experience a defeat like the Battle of Bataan. On the contrary, They'd be like the soldiers of the Battle of Guadalcanal who had twice as many supplies as they needed. As a Christian, you will never, ever, ever run out of God's free favor, ever. Through Jesus Christ, you will always have an overflowing, endless, undiminished supply of grace. Now, in our more honest moments, I think that many of us doubt this. And we wonder, God, is there really enough grace for me? I mean, I've been committing the same sin for decades. I still get angry. I'm still proud. I'm still defensive. I'm still whatever. I, I, I know that there's grace for the little sins, but what about the huge sins that we've committed? Is there really enough grace for those sins too? I mean, God, you've forgiven me so many hundreds of times in the past. Are you going to keep giving me grace? Are you going to keep forgiving me? John 1.16, for from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace, a never-ending supply of grace. Now, at this point, we must remember that God's unlimited grace 
takes on many different forms. Sometimes we need grace for increased faith. Sometimes we need grace for comfort after severe loss. Sometimes we need grace to deal with loneliness, to forgive, to be courageous, to have self-discipline, to not take our own lives. We need grace when there's persecution and grace when there's freedom. Grace when we're young and grace when we're old. Grace when we're healthy and grace when we're sick. Now, grace is not a substance. Grace is not a thing. Grace is unmerited favor that comes through Jesus Christ. Grace is Jesus. He is the free gift. He's the one that gives us the strength and the forgiveness. And John is reminding us that that grace spigot will never, ever be shut off. Ever. Now, at this point, a little discontentment is good. What do I mean? Some of you have plateaued spiritually. You are content with the grace you've received, not realizing that God the Father, through Jesus Christ, offers you an unlimited supply of grace. He's given you grace to do extraordinary things, but you are content with your life the way that it is right now. God offers you grace upon grace upon grace to do great things for his kingdom. I pray almost every night for my boys, God, I pray that you would help my boys to do great things for your kingdom. And they can because of God's unlimited grace. Don't be content with where you're at. Ask God for more grace to help you give more, serve more, evangelize more, pray more. His grace is available free of charge. Jesus is very gracious. But has God always been gracious? Yes, which brings us to the second point, which is a lot shorter, don't worry. First, the nature of grace. Second, the history of grace. The history of grace. In verse 17, John contrasts two eras in the history of God's grace. Era one is the preparation of grace, and era two is the provision of grace. So verse 17a and verse 17b. So verse 17a, the preparation of grace, John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law John refers to is the law of Moses that God gave to Moses to give to Israel in roughly 1450 B.C. That law contains 613 very specific commands for the nation of Israel summarized in the Ten Commandments. And very quickly, Israel realized that they were not very good at obeying those laws. They failed over and over and over again to obey God's laws. And the fault was not in the laws. The laws were a reflection of God's character. The fault was in Israel. They had a sin nature. And by the way, the laws were never, ever, ever meant to be a ladder to climb into heaven or a way to earn salvation. The laws were always meant to be a revelation of who God is. And more importantly, the laws were meant to point the Israelites to their great need 
of a savior. When you and I can't obey those laws, we quickly realize we need someone else to obey those laws for us and to die in our place paying the penalty that we deserve for breaking those laws. And the good news is Jesus Christ does both those things. He obeys all the laws for us and he pays our penalty for us so that we can be forgiven. Which brings us to the next era of grace. So era one is the preparation for grace. Era two is the provision of grace. Back to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, the law was given to Moses to drive the Israelites to Jesus. It was meant to show them their great need for a Savior, a law-keeping, suffering Savior. Galatians 3.24 says this, so the law, that is the Mosaic law, was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified or declared righteous by faith. The law was always meant to drive us to Christ. Now, according to one scholar, the relationship between law and grace was once taught to baseball fans at Wrigley Field not too long ago. The Chicago Cubs acquired Vance Law to play third base. A little bit later, they brought up Mark Grace from the minor leagues to play first base. For two seasons, Law and Grace held down opposite sides of the baseball diamond at Wrigley Field. Law was playing third base. Grace was playing first base. So whenever a batter would hit a grounder to third base, Law would quickly grab the ball. What would he do? He would throw it to Grace at first base as soon as possible. Illustrating, for all you baseball fans, that the law is meant to point us or throw us to Christ. The problem with most of us is simply this. We are not fully aware or cognizant of the incredible demands of the law. But think about what Jesus says. He summarizes the law for us. He says the law is summarized in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now I guarantee you that all of us this morning have broken both those laws in the last couple of hours. How many of us can honestly say that we have loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength for more than 33 seconds in our lives? None of us have. Well, Dave, what's the big deal? Can't God just forgive? Isn't it God's job to forgive? No. God is holy and righteous and just, and lawbreakers deserve to die and go to hell for all eternity. That's what you and I deserve. And until we come to grips with that, we are never, ever going to be lost in love and wonder and praise. It's the law that drives us to grace. 
Consider the words of this great hymn written 300 years ago by Augustus Toplady. He says this, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precepts to obey, but toiled without success. I tried really, really, really hard to obey those laws. I toiled night and day, but I could never do it. And that's what God requires, by the way. But then along comes Jesus. Verse 2, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. We now obey because we want to, because we love Jesus, because he's obeyed the law for us. But how many of us have really grappled with the claims of the law? Not enough. Not enough. Because when we do, we realize we are in deep, deep trouble. But that's meant to drive us to grace, to throw us to first base, to get us there as quickly as possible. I love how one scholar contrasts law and grace. He says this, law demanded righteousness from men, and grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. Law speaks of what men must do for good, and grace tells us of what Christ has done for men. Praise God that we live in the era of grace. People have always been saved by grace. I understand that, both Old and New Testament. That's very clear in the Bible. But you and I have a very clear understanding of how that works. Through Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, lawbreakers can be seen as righteous and forgiven. Well, Dave, who is it who specifically gives us grace? That brings us to the last point. So first, the nature of grace. Second, the history of grace. And third is the author of grace. Who is the author of grace? Answer, the invisible God made visible. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is saying in this cryptic verse, no one has ever seen God, the only God, except Jesus who is very near to the Father. Jesus has made God known. The NIV translation captures this well. It says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. I think the King James there says that he's in the bosom of the Father, or close to the Father's heart meaning that the Son is very, very near and dear to the Father in the triune community. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. By the way, if anyone ever doubts the deity of Jesus, take them to John 1, because over and over and over again, John is reminding us that Jesus is theos, Greek word for God. Here it is again. Who is himself God, Jesus is himself God, and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. What is John saying? What's his point? In the Old Covenant, no one saw the face of God. 
To see God's face usually meant sudden death because God is so holy and righteous and beautiful and pure. No one could see God's face and live until Jesus. Along comes Jesus. And John is saying to us that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father because Jesus reveals the Father to us. In fact, the word for make known is the word we get the word exegete from. So John is saying that Jesus is the one who exegetes the Father. He's the one who explains the Father to us. He's the one who unpacks the Father's very nature to us. And later on in John's gospel, Jesus very, very boldly says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's very clearly saying there that the Father and I are of the same nature, the same essence. So it's Jesus who reveals the Father to us. Consider John's logic. Jesus Christ has made God known. Jesus abounds with grace. If Jesus abounds with grace, then the triune God abounds with grace. God the Father overflows with grace. He freely gave us His Son. God the Son overflows with grace. He freely came to earth and gave us himself. God the Spirit overflows with grace. He freely gives us the ability to believe the gospel, and he freely gives us strength to obey God's demands. God, the triune God, the God of the Bible, overflows, abounds with grace. Is that how you think of God this morning? Or do you think of God up there in the sky just ready to pounce on you and make your life miserable? Again, read this book. It'll change your perspective on God. But read the Bible. It's even clearer. John 1. God abounds with grace. He loves to give himself freely to sinners. Grace is at the very heart and soul of the Christian religion because the triune God overflows with grace. Well, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts sat around in a room and debated for hours what, if anything, makes the Christian faith unique. Several suggestions were put forward. How about the incarnation? No, other religions... Uh, have a different version of God's appearing in human form. Well, how about the resurrection? No, other religions also have versions of life after death and God's coming back from the dead. And they debated for hours and hours. And along the corridor came C.S. Lewis. And he heard the conversation and said, what's all the ruckus about in here? And they said, we are trying to discern what makes Christianity unique among world religions. And C.S. Lewis said, well, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, everyone agreed. The notion of God freely giving 
blessing and merit and favor to rebels is utterly unheard of in world religions. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, Jewish law-keeping, and the Muslim code of law, all these are utterly contrary to Christianity. They all teach that if you work a little harder, God will love you and forgive you. But Christianity teaches the opposite. God freely and willingly and joyfully lavishes rebels with favor. The question is, have you received that favor? And to receive that, all you have to do is say, God, I admit, I deserve judgment. I break your laws, but I desperately need your favor. Would you please give it to me? 